Good morning, and welcome to Monday Mornings. With Maddie and Morgan. I'm Maddie. And I'm Morgan. Hello. (laughs) Hi. How are you? I'm good. Very hot. How are you? Oh, I'm melting, and Mm. I've just been super busy this week, so it's, yeah, I want a nap. (laughs) I did nap for an hour earlier, so... I leave for my hike on Monday, so I'm getting my last-minute stuff together, which I guess that'll be the day that this comes out. Yeah. And then you guys will get two more. Yep. After that. And then we'll be taking a little bit of a hiatus, but we can talk about that in one of the other episodes. (laughs) Give ourselves a breather. Yeah. (laughs) And so I don't have to record from the woods. (laughs) Yeah, it might be a little bit hard. There's usually not Wi-Fi there. Yeah, typically no. (laughs) (laughs) Maddie, what are we talking about today? Today, we are talking about Amelia Earhart. (laughs) I'm so excited. Can I just say one thing really quick? Yes. When I was little, I thought her last name was like Earhart, like (laughs) A-I-R. Like because, airplane. Like, yeah. <laughs> that would seem fitting. It made sense. And I was like, okay, obviously she had to be a pilot because, like, that was her last name. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I am so excited. I'm going to be covering her, like, biography. And Maddie's going to be covering the fateful flight and the disappearance and all of the theories that are out there. Yes. They're pretty insane. <laughs> honestly, that's all I know about Amelia Earhart is that she flew a lot and then disappeared. Oh my god. So. <laughs> she did like everything. I'll tell you about it. But oh, yeah. She was she disappeared when she was 38 and I don't know how she s- did this much stuff before then. <laughs> Cuz they all died early back then, so they had That's to true. Them. Well, Shall we? Yes. All right. Like I said, people, today we're covering a hot topic. <laughs> Another conspiracy. But it so it falls into both the badass historical woman and wild conspiracy theory categories. So really it's the best of both worlds. Yeah. So it should be good. Buckle up. All of the information in my section came pretty much directly from Biography.com, WikipediaHistory.com, AmeliaEarhart.com, and then I also listened to Astonishing Legends, Stuff You Should Know, and um, there's a documentary by Nat Geo called Expedition Amelia, which is really good. And as always, it'll all be in our sources doc if you want to know more. Amelia Mary Earhart was born on July 24th, 1897 to Samuel Edwin Stanton Earhart and Amelia Amy Otis Earhart in Atchison, Kansas. Hmm. As a child, Amelia was nicknamed Millie or Mealy. <laughs> I don't like that one, but whatever. <laughs> yeah. And Amelia and her sister Grace had a relatively unconventional upbringing. As two little girls in the early 20th century, Amy Earhart, their mom, was also a badass. 
And despite the disapproval of her mother, which was Amelia's grandmother, obviously, Mm -hmm. Amy had zero interest in raising her daughters to be, quote, nice little girls. (laughs) And that was a huge deviation from the norm, especially in the early 1900s. (laughs) Oh, yeah. She even let her little girls wear pants. Heck yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a, um, I didn't watch it, but I'll probably have to watch it after this um there's a i think it's a documentary on netflix about amelia and her sister oh i didn't know that yeah that's cute but as expected amelia definitely grew up as a tomboy her favorite activities included hunting rats in the barn sledding down a hill (laughs) climbing trees and collecting critters such as bugs and frogs Oh, I love so frogs. That sounds like uh, my childhood, minus like yeah. the hunting rats in the barn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but her first quote informal flight was in a wooden box <laughs> off of a ramp that her uncle helped her build and fastened to the top of the family's tool shed. <laughs> so that sounds safe. <laughs> I remember hearing about that in one of the podcasts I listened to, and I was just like, what? Sounds like a recipe for brain damage. (laughs) Whatever. (laughs) Amelia's first time seeing an airplane was when she was 10 years old at the Iowa State Fair. And she was not impressed. Oh, okay. (laughs) This was 1907, so the plane she saw was an early biplane. Think, like, the Wright Brothers-style aircraft. Oh, yeah. Because that was only first flown successfully in 1903, so... In four years, four years, huge strides really hadn't been made. Yeah. So even though it was a biplane, this is, was a lot more primitive than the fancy biplanes that she flew later in her career. So the Earhart family had quite a bit of drama, of course. Everybody does. <laughs> including, but not limited to, moving around the Midwest, having an alcoholic father... Yada, yada, yada. However, I'm not really going to cover that because it doesn't seem super relevant to our bigger story here. And this is already probably going to be a long episode. So. <laughs> oh, yeah, it is. Um, everybody go get your coffee, your tea, your yeah. biscuits. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe you're on a road trip. Maybe pour yourself a <laughs> glass of wine. Not if you're on a road trip. If you're at home. <laughs> no. <laughs> <Take that back. laughs> anyway. <laughs> In 1916, she graduated from high school, so we skipped a couple years here, but you get the point, (laughs) and began junior college in Pennsylvania, but didn't finish that program. And in 1917, she went on vacation to Toronto to visit her sister. Sadly, this is when World War I was fully raging around the world. And Amelia witnessed wounded soldiers all over the place flooding into hospitals, which inspired her to become a Red Cross nursing assistant in Toronto. Good for her. Yeah. During her time as a nurse, she liked to spend times, spend times, spend time, watching pilots in the Royal Flying Corps train at a local airfield, which was like near the hospital that she was working at. Yeah. Like I said, she had a ton of jobs before her aviation career even started. After the war, Earhart entered the pre-med program at Columbia University in New York City. 
but left in 1920 after her parents insisted that she live with them in California. What? <laughs> yep, I'm not sure why, but... Okay. When she was in California, she went on her first airplane ride Ooh. in 1920 with renowned World War I pilot Frank Hawks. And this was totally an experience that prompted her to take flying lessons. Hmm. And in 1921, she bought her first plane. Ooh. A bright, nice. yeah. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> a bright yellow Kinner Airster biplane that she nicknamed the Canary. It's pretty cute. I saw a picture of it. <laughs> so she had this plane for two years before she even got her pilot's license. <laughs> wow. But she was the 16th woman to be issued a pilot's, pilot's license. Hey. So that's cool. And as you can probably infer, if you know anything about her, she became extremely passionate about flying. Oh, no, I didn't assume that at all. <laughs> in 1922, she was the first woman to fly solo over 14,000 feet. Nice. And then, in the mid-1920s, she moved to Massachusetts, Woo. where she became a social worker at the Denison House, a settlement home for immigrants in Boston. Different? Okay. <laughs> so now we're at, so she's been a nurse or a nursing assistant. She's been... A pre-med student, she's been a junior college student, she's been a social worker, and she's been a teacher, which I didn't mention before, but... Damn. So we're at, like, five different careers so far. (laughs) I get it, but... So, yeah, she was working as a social worker at the Denson House, a settlement home for immigrants in Boston, and she also continued to pursue her interest in aviation. In 1924, she sadly had to sell the Canary due to limited finances. Hmm. But in 1927, so three years later, she got back into flying when she joined the American Aeronautical Society, the Boston chapter, invested money in the Denison Airport in Massachusetts, and worked as a sales rep for Kenner Airplanes in the Boston area. Hmm. But that's not all. She also wrote articles about flying in the local newspaper. So you could say that she, like, full force pushed back into the aviation world. There was no, like, easing back in. Yeah. (laughs) Like, immediately took, like, (laughs) three major things and was like, all right, I'm back in it. (laughs) She was like, I got it, guys. I'm here. During this time, promoters were looking for a woman to fly across the Atlantic And in April 1928, Earhart was selected for the flight. Some speculated that the decision was partly based on her resemblance to Charles Lindbergh, who had become the first man to fly nonstop solo across the Atlantic the previous year. What? (laughs) Someday. Yeah, isn't that weird? (laughs) Like, they looked alike. (laughs) She got picked because she looked like this dude. Like, what? (laughs) And someday we'll have to do an episode about the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby. Oh, yeah. That's like a whole thing. Oh, my God. Didn't make that connection there, but yes. Oh, yeah. Same person. (laughs) Wow. But. So, like we said, Charles Lindbergh was the first man to fly nonstop solo across the Atlantic the previous year. Mm -hmm. On June 17th, 1928, Earhart departed Trapassi, Newfoundland. Canada as a passenger 
aboard a seaplane piloted by Vilmer Stoltz and Lewis Gordon. After landing at Burryport, Wales on June 18th, Earhart became basically a celebrity. Hmm. But not going to lie, she was pretty pissed about this flight. <laughs> oh. Because she was under the impression when they picked her that she was going to be flying. Oh. Instead of a yeah. passenger. So she said that she felt like, quote, a sack of potatoes. Understandable, I get it. Meaning that she, like, felt completely useless. I'm like, yeah, I get that. If you think you're going to be in charge of this flight and then you're just a passenger. like, Yeah, you're like, oh, sweet, cool, I get to do this awesome thing. And then they're like, okay, now sit back there. Right. She basically was, like, a pretty face for their flight. But not really if she looked like Charles Lindbergh. So, uh, whatever. Yeah, what? <laughs> we'll just leave that at that. Uh. In 1928, Earhart wrote an autobiography about aviation and her transatlantic experience. And it was called 20 Hours, 40 Minutes. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Sounds like (laughs) a book I'd write about, like, something petty. Just like, I waited 20 hours and 40 minutes. (laughs) I waited 20 hours and 40 minutes at the DMV. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Upon publication, Earhart's collaborator and publisher, Putnam, George Putnam, heavily promoted her through a book and lecture tours and product endorsements. She actively became involved in the promotions, especially in women's fashions. Like she had like her own luggage line. She had her own like functional fashion line. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) For years, she had already sewn her own clothes, and now she contributed her input to a new line of women's fashion that embodied a sleek and purposeful yet feminine look. Huh. Through her celebrity endorsements, Earhart gained notoriety and acceptance in the public eye. She accepted a position as an associate editor at Cosmopolitan Magazine. What? (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Yeah. I told you she does everything. (laughs) Jesus. Okay. Using the media outlet to campaign for commercial air travel, which was still obviously very new at the time. Yeah. From this forum, she then became a promoter for Transcontinental Air Transport, later known as Transworld Airlines or TWA. And she was also the vice president of National Airways, which flew routes in the Northeast. Oh. Okay. Busy lady. Earhart's public persona presented kind of like a shy, demure personality. Mm-hmm. But she really wasn't that way. That was just kind of like her her media persona. Oh, uh, gotcha. Yeah. So this quote Earhart harbored a burning desire to distinguish herself as different from the rest of the world. Hmm. She was an intelligent and competent pilot who never panicked or lost her nerve, but she actually was not a brilliant aviator. Yeah, that's what I got from the last flight. (laughs) Her skills kept pace with aviation during her first... During the first decade of the century, but as technology moved forward with, like, all the radio and navigation equipment and stuff, she continued to fly by her instinct and really didn't 
yeah. seem to make an attempt to keep up with the technology. <laughs> so, so yes, she was badass, but it's she wasn't badass because of her flying skills. No. <laughs> so, <laughs> she recognized her limitations and continuously worked to improve her skills, but the constant promotion and touring never really gave her the time she needed to catch up on everything. Yeah. Recognizing the power of her celebrity, she strove to be an example of courage, intelligence, and self-reliance. She Hmm. hoped her influence would help topple negative stereotypes about women and open doors for them in every field. Love that. Yeah. Earhart set her sights on establishing herself as a respected aviator. Shortly after returning from her 1928 transatlantic flight, she set off on a successful solo flight across North America. In 1929, she entered the first Santa Monica to Cleveland Women's Air Derby, which is like uh, an airplane race, which is cool. Interesting. (laughs) Placing third. And in 1931, Earhart powered a Pitcairn PCA-2 autogyro, which is like this weird type of plane. And set a world altitude record of 18,415 feet. Wowee. Which is a lot because this was not, like, pressurized cabins weren't really a thing yet, so. Yeah. During this time, Earhart became involved with the 99s, an organization of female pilots advancing the cause of women in aviation. She became the organization's first president in 1930. Yeah, and I think it was called the 99s because I think originally there was, like, originally I think there was 99 members or something like that. Yeah. I probably should have looked up, but that's what I remember hearing. Oh, also, she was married to this guy named George Putnam, which if you remember, Putnam was her book publisher. Yep. And George Putnam was originally married to this lady named Dorothy. Who was the heiress to Crayola. What? I wish yep. I was the heiress to Crayola. Same. <laughs> I want free crayons and colored the pencils. What? Of crayons. <laughs> I'm so mad. I didn't even think about that as like an actual thing. <laughs> That'd be amazing. I'm going to be angry about this for like a week now. <laughs> oh. Don't be mad. It's okay. <laughs> I'll send you crayons. Thanks. <laughs> Basically, Dorothy and George were just constantly cheating on each other and finally decided to call it quits. And like we said, George and Amelia already knew each other because he was the publisher of her autobiography, though they claimed that their relationship was strictly professional. (laughs) So then, after his divorce... George started to, quote, pursue Miss Earhart and proposed to her, like, like a bunch of times. <laughs> and she kept saying no. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, eventually, she said yes, and they got married in 1931. Okay, so... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Friendly tip. If somebody says no, you leave them alone. I'm, like, wondering what the, like, final... Yes, was like. <laughs> She's just like, ugh, fine, I'm bored. On the day of their wedding, she wrote a letter to him telling him, quote, 
I want you to understand, I shall not hold you to any medieval code of faithfulness, nor shall I consider myself bound to you similarly. Hmm. So basically, she just gave him a free pass. <laughs> She's Wild. like, yeah, do whatever you want. <laughs> so clearly, she did not care about George. <laughs> but, nah. Which I kind of gathered from a lot of the things that I read and heard. <laughs> Like, yeah, her marriage was like very she... much not an important part of her life. <laughs> no, like, she kind of just did it, I think, because he wouldn't stop asking, honestly. Oh, and she was also way ahead of her time, because she didn't take his last name. Good. Which was, like, unheard of in the early 1900s. Yeah. And she did omit the word obey from their wedding vows. So Good. Yes, As you lady. should. Yeah, I know. I, obviously you should, but that wasn't a thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She was, like, way ahead. <laughs> mm. But after that whole marriage fiasco, it seems like in 1932, Amelia was truly living her best life. She became the first woman to fly across the Atlantic, the first woman to complete a solo nonstop flight across the U.S., and the first person to fly solo from Hawaii to the mainland. True. Between 1930 and 1935, Earhart set seven women's speed and distance aviation records in a variety of aircraft. In 1935, she joined the faculty at Purdue, Purdue University, hmm. of course, because <laughs> she's everywhere, <laughs> as a female career consultant and technical advisor to the Department of Aeronautics. I actually know somebody who's a pilot that went to Purdue for... That's cool. Pilot stuff. Sweet. (laughs) And then, that's when, during her time at Purdue, she set her sights on a new goal. She wanted to be the first person to circumnavigate the Earth via the equator. Hmm. I guess there were people that had airily circumnavigated the Earth successfully before... But they hadn't done it strictly on the equator, meaning they flew less miles. Because obviously the equator is the widest part of the Earth. Mm -hmm. Which I know that's not the right way to say it, but that's the only way I can think of it. (laughs) I mean, the Earth is actually flat anyways, so it doesn't really matter. (laughs) Oh, yeah, 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 I forgot. (laughs) That is true. (laughs) I just pretend it's not because it makes you uncomfortable to think about that's where she went. She flew off the edge. Amelia Earhart <laughs> flew the off the edge of the egg. <laughs> Sorry, I can't even say it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> to prep for her trip, she bought a Lockheed Electra L10E plane to make the trip with. And Maddie, I don't know if you've looked up a picture of the plane, but they're really cool. They're I like haven't. silver and shiny and they look really fast. Yeah, I haven't looked up a picture, but I saw one in one of the things I was watching and in a bunch of the pictures. Yeah, it's really cool. It looks cool. She then assembled her team, which included Captain Harry Manning as her first navigator, Fred Newton as her second navigator, and Paul Mance as her technical advisor. Mm-hmm. And fun fact, Paul Mance was actually like a Hollywood stuntman. <laughs> He was like, uh, he like flew planes for Hollywood stunts. <laughs> I love that. I just thought that was funny that she included him as part of her team. 
Yeah. So their main strategy for the flight was to leave from Oakland, California to Hawaii and then go from Hawaii to Australia and then cross India and Africa and head to Florida. And from Florida, they would fly back to California. Gotcha. So on March 17th, 1937, their adventure began when they took off from Oakland on their first leg. They experienced some periodic problems flying across the Pacific and landed in Hawaii for some repairs at the United States Navy's field on Ford Island in Pearl Harbor. After three days, the Electra began its takeoff, but something went very wrong. (laughs) Earhart lost control and looped the plane on the runway. (laughs) So she crashed, (laughs) which is like a weird way to say she crashed, but she very much crashed. Oh, yeah. How this happened is still the subject of some controversy. Several witnesses, including an Associated Press journalist, said they saw a tire blow on the landing gear. Other sources, including Paul Mance, indicated that it was a pilot error. Mm -hmm. So nobody was seriously hurt. The plane was severely damaged Mm -hmm. and had (laughs) shipped back to California to get fixed. (laughs) <laughs> so, obviously, this put their trip several months behind right off the bat. Oh, yeah. So, in the interim, Earhart and Putnam secured additional funding for a new flight. And the stress of having this long delay and fundraising appearances left Earhart obviously exhausted. Yeah. And by the time the plane was repaired, weather patterns and global wind changes reco- required alterations to the flight plan as expected because that seems to be how things are going with this trip yeah it just seems like a bad juju (laughs) like oh yeah this was the universe telling them not to go exactly but this time her and her crew would fly east instead of west like they were previously going to fly captain harry manning wouldn't join the team due to previous commitments Although rumors speculated that his wife threatened to leave him if he didn't come home. (laughs) Paul Mance was also absent, reportedly due to contract dispute. So, I don't blame them for not going because, like, I'd be sketched out too. Yeah, I heard that um, Harry Manning decided to jump off that trip basically right after she crashed trying to leave Hawaii. (laughs) That's probably smart. So, yeah. Also, she shouldn't have continued with, like, for obvious reasons that I'll explain later, but just her and Noonan shouldn't have been flying together, in my opinion. I agree. So, after flying from Oakland to Miami, after their plane was fixed, Earhart and just Noonan took off on June 1st from Miami with tons of fanfare and publicity, obviously, because people had now been waiting for three months or so. Oh, yeah. The plane flew towards Central and South America, turning east for Africa. So because they're going east this time, obviously they're doing their entire flight backwards of what they had originally planned. From there, the plane crossed the Indian Ocean and finally touched down in Lay. Yeah, Lay. Guinea. On June 29, 1937, about 22,000 miles of the journey had been completed so far. The remaining 7,000 miles would take place over the Pacific. Mm-hmm. In lay, <laughs> Earhart contracted dysentery that lasted for days. 
Mm-hmm. So <laughs> the universe is really like the universe is making her shit herself so she doesn't go on this last leg of the trip, but she still went, so Oh yeah. While she recuperated, several necessary adjustments were made to the plane. <laughs> Shocking. Like if your plane has to get fixed this many times, maybe you shouldn't be flying it. Mm-mm. Extra amounts of fuel were stowed on board. Obviously, because they're flying a lot. Yeah. The parachutes were packed away, for there would be no need for them while flying along the vast and desolate Pacific Ocean. <laughs> and that is the end of my section, and Maddie gets to take it from here. Woo! So here we go. Jumping back into this terrible journey. <laughs> <laughs> this catastrophic journey right off the bat. <laughs> Yeah, so I didn't know a ton about the other parts of their journey, but I know a good amount about the last chunk. So, July 2nd, 1937, Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan took off from Ley, New Guinea. This would be the last confirmed sighting of either of the pair. They were supposed to leave from Ley and land on Howland Island, which was about 2,500 miles away and extremely tiny. Like, literally, it was about a mile by half a mile and 20 feet above sea level. That's literally, like, like the runway at Burlington is about a mile long. Yeah. And that's a port. It's a very tiny, tiny landing place. But they never made it. The official report on their deaths and disappearances blames bad radios, low fuel, and poor visibility. One of the biggest issues with the radio was that they only had two-way, communi- two-way communications for part of their this flight, and it was only with one person. And I'm pretty positive it was the airport that they left from in Ley. Some gotcha. reports say that it was a boat that they were supposed to be flying over at some point. Yeah, that's what I read. Yeah, I heard both, but I think it was the um, boat that they were supposed to be flying over. And everywhere else, just, like, either Amelia was kind of just sending out signals, but I don't know. There was also a few other people sending them radio signals, but it's not known if they ever heard these messages since they couldn't respond because they had radio damage. Other people were able to hear some messages that Amelia and Fred were sending out. But again, on this flight, they only ever had two-way communications with this one guy on a boat that was supposed to be helping them land on this tiny little island, I guess. They also left a Morse code machine behind, which I thought was very strange, but apparently it's not necessary because neither of them even knew Morse code. Which also seems like a massive oversight, but... Yeah, I'm not trying to victim blame, because obviously what happened is tragic, but or what we think happened was tragic, but it just seems like a lot of things went wrong. Like, a lot of red flags were present. <laughs> yeah, and also, like, I don't know. Like, I just assume that anybody that is, like, a ship captain or a plane pilot should probably know Morse code because it's used in, like, so many emergency situations. Well, and, like, so the other thing was, I don't know if you found this in your research, and not to interrupt you, but um, <laughs> the other guy that was supposed to be navigating, the first guy, I don't remember his mm-hmm. name, oh, Captain Manning, um, 
establish a unique code for them, knowing very well that none of the rest of the team knew Morse code. Yeah. So there, there's other ways to do it, but they never switched it back. <laughs> yeah, I think there was... She had, like, made it very clear that was, like, we don't know Morse code. Don't try to communicate with us in this code, in that mm-hmm. code. I think I one of the podcasts I listened to did mention it, but I just... There was so much about the whole Morse code thing that I just didn't understand, so I kind of moved if, on. <laughs> listeners, if you haven't gathered, there is a fuck ton of information about this. For something that we don't know very much about, the, like, what actually happened, there is, like... Oh my god. There's so much <laughs> information and disinformation that right. is and straight up. And like minute details about her life, which is kind of some of the stuff that I skipped over in the first section. Oh, yeah. So, Fred was the navigator on this trip. And honestly, most people don't even know that he was like there. So, like, True. sorry that Fred doesn't get talked about enough because he also died. Or didn't die. We don't really know. Um, we'll get to that. But um, this, this, he used celestial navigation to get them around, I guess, which is kind of like definitely outdated, I'm guessing. Um, but this was not ideal for these conditions since it was overcast, which definitely threw him off. Um, the Navy had set up a Obviously, ship. before, sorry to interrupt you again. Oh my gosh. No, you're this fine. was obviously before, like, radar and stuff, so... <laughs> yeah, I know nothing about airplanes, so when I heard that this guy is going celestial navigation, I was like, is he straight up, like, Moana-ing it, like, looking at the sky? Yeah, literally. Um, on, if you watch the Expedition Amelia um, documentary, they show how to do it. Oh, wow. You, like, do, like, me- you, like, measure stuff and then use this, like, weird, like, telescope slash binocular thing with the little what looks like a protractor on it it's it's weird <laughs> sounds fake but okay <laughs> i know <laughs> so the navy had set up a few ships in the area to help guide amelia and fred and these ships never saw any trace of this plane like they didn't hear it they didn't see them so that would mean that they were like extremely off course if they did ever make it to like the same area as these ships yeah um and although fred had thought that they had flown over one of the ships it is assumed that they mistook and either saw one of the other ships that they thought they were going to see or a completely different ship that was based somewhere else um there's also the issue of fuel so Mm. (laughs) it's known that they were definitely running low on fuel at this point um, towards, like, the last of their communications, and if they had seen the wrong ship, they were probably a few hundred miles off of their intended route, which would make them even more desperate for fuel, but in, I think it was the Astonishing Legends podcast, they talked about how if the weather was off or if she had to pull up and go over like mountains or something if like the weather was bad and she hadn't seen them and she had to drastically pull up and just basically all these different things that like where things could have gone wrong that would have used up extra fuel and why they wouldn't have made it to where they were supposed to make it Mm -hmm. 
But the official report from the Navy assumes that the pair ran out of gas and crashed into the Pacific. This was after a mass search that involved both ships and planes and the help of the Japanese Navy, which we'll get back to Japan in a little bit, but some people say that this is a reason why she wasn't kidnapped and taken by Japan, but just because they helped look for her doesn't mean that they didn't take her. Um, Yeah, we'll go into it, I think, later. Oh, yeah. And this area that they searched was 250,000 square miles of ocean, which is larger than the size of Texas. Holy shit. It also cost um, America about $4 million, and this was in the middle of the Great Depression, so some people weren't super happy about that. Mm, You know, I love a good mystery, but that seems like a misallocation of resources. (laughs) Yeah. And Amelia Earhart was declared legally dead in January of 1939, 18 months after they disappeared. Not sure about Fred, but I'm going to assume that they also declared him dead as well. I think Um, they did, yeah. Yeah. Poor Fred. He, like, never gets recognized for anything. I know, and that's the thing. is like, all the resources I was reading, they were like, oh, yeah, then this happened to Amelia, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, about Fred? But was Fred there, too? (laughs) Poor Fred was just trying his best. Literally. He was left high and dry by his crewmates. Ugh. So... This is that was the official government released explanation for what happened. But as we know, I love a good conspiracy. So here are a few of what I thought were the best. Yeah, just so you all know, there's like a million theories. <laughs> like Yeah, I didn't even get to look are into wacky as hell. Yeah, I didn't even get to look into aliens, which I wanted to do, but I'm just going to say it right now you never know. Maybe they were abducted by aliens. It's entirely possible. That's all the... There's no proof behind it. That's just all the information I have. Um. Aliens <laughs> seem like they're always a plausible explanation, so... Yeah. I trust it. So, the first theory is that they survived... Oh, wait. So, this one, I real found out more about it, and I just forgot to finish... Um, editing it but so this theory actually goes um after the japan theory but i guess it can be either way but there was a theory that amelia actually ended up living out the rest of her life as a housewife in new jersey named irene bolam yeah so this poor woman was accused of being amelia and irene was actually like a banker or somebody in finance or something like Whatever. And she also was a pilot and did have a mutual friend with Amelia. Yeah. But I guess in the 70s, there was this dude who was trying to publish a biography and stating that this woman was actually, in fact, Amelia Earhart. So she <laughs> sued him for this. Yeah. She was like, leave me alone. She was like, no, leave me alone. So she sued him for this and won $1.5 million. Good. And then yeah, after she she's should've. dead, this man is like harassing her family because he wants to get fingerprints and photographs of her body oh my god her family was like no bro leave us alone (laughs) jesus so some people believe that but i mean like of anywhere in the world to go why the fuck would you hide out in new jersey (laughs) the literal armpit of america i know (laughs) (laughs) so next theory is the castaway theory um 
broadly this theory is basically that they crashed and they ended up on an island and either she survived or they both survived for a little while and they ended up dying there or like became one with like locals um but (laughs) there is a specific group that pushes this theory pretty often and it is called the international group for historic aircraft recovery or tighar yeah they're a big part of that documentary that i watched Oh, yeah, Astonishing Legends talked about, like, every podcast I listened to talked about them a bunch, and, like, every resource I read talked about them a whole bunch. Mm-hmm. Um, but this group used Amelia's last known message to try to determine her location, and the last message that, she like, they have is her saying that they were flying, quote, on the line 157-337, running north and south which you know more about airplanes than I do and flying because I have absolutely no clue what that means, but I guess it means that they were going north and south on these specific coordinates somewhere. Yeah, so if you picture a globe with, like, the latitude and longitude, yeah, they were on a specific line. They were just running that line. I can't remember if it's the latitude or the longitude, but... Gotcha. So, in theory, the boat that they were supposed to fly over when they were, like, almost there or whatever, was directly on that line. Okay, yeah, so I think the boat was on 337. Yeah. And that's what they were going up and down on. And they never flew over the boat. Yeah. And so then Tigar takes these coordinates, and they said, hmm, what if they're a few hundred miles off? So in 1989, they tried to determine where they may have ended up. And so when they couldn't... They believe that when they couldn't find Howland Island, they flew 350 miles south and emergency landed on Gardner Island, which is now known as Nikumaroro. <laughs> yeah, that's the one that I'm just going to keep talking about this documentary, but that's where that the documentary that I watched was based out of. Yeah, there's a lot of information about that island yeah. and the whole castaway theory. I don't get into a ton of information about it just because I really liked the Japan theory and I watched a documentary about it. So Japan theory just makes sense to me. It makes sense. And then I'll get into it in a minute, but yeah. Yeah. So beep boop bop. They think that Amelia and Fred had lived on Gardner Island, which I'm just going to call it that because it's easier for me to say than um, Niku. Yeah. Um, <laughs> We get it. (laughs) Yeah. So it's thought that they may have lived there for a while as castaways and eventually died. Um, A few different theories say that he passed away in the plane crash and then she lived there alone for a while. And this is like kind of backed because they found some, is this the island? I think this is the island where they found some like freckle cream of hers. They found a ton of artifacts on this island. Obviously they can't confirm that any of theirs are any of them are hers because it's been so yeah they found like a ton of stuff yeah yeah definitely watch that documentary they go through all of it yeah i'm going to i just don't have disney plus on my tv up here so i wasn't gonna run downstairs and try to watch it Um, all right but this can also be disputed because planes flew over Gardner Island a week after they went missing and saw no signs of life 
which would make sense because the island hadn't been inhabited since 1892. But it's also like, did they just not see them? Were they like too far in? Did they not like, obviously, like, I don't know what this island looks like, but you know, I don't know. It's like, a, it's weird because it's, it's a small island. It's bigger than Hatland Island, but mm-hmm. the entire center of it at high tide is a lagoon. Oh. So when the water's low, it's just all a big coral reef. But then when the water's high, it's like it's almost like a donut. There's a giant lagoon in the middle of it. Weird. So they so probably would have seen them from a plane. Right. Gotcha. So there was actually a partial set of human remains found on Gardner Island in 1940 by British officials. But this information is kind of wacky, and I don't fully trust it, because they had the bones determined by a physician at the time to be from a male. But then, these bones were lost, but then Tighar analyzed the measurements and determined that they were from a European woman that was Amelia's height. Then in 2018, the University of Tennessee and Tighar analyzed these bones, the bone data again, because they still don't have the bones. They're just going off of measurements that somebody took in 1940. Mm -hmm. And they determined that these bones have more similarity to Earhart than to 99% of individuals in a large reference sample. Ah! Which, I get it. But I'm also just like, how do you compare measurements of the bones? <laughs> right. To <laughs> other people's but like, I don't know. It's I'm not a I'm forensic sure anthropologist. More complicated than we know. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a forensic anthropologist, so I'm not gonna pretend that I know how I'd like to be. That'd be oh, cool. Same. But this, I just was like, I don't know if I trust that, that they just kind of were like, oh, actually, it's a lady that yeah. may have been Amelia. Like, um, I get it, but... I don't know. Like, confirmation bias, but... Yeah, like, for our final theory, or theories, I guess, um, I got most of this information from the Earhart's Electra, eyewitness accounts of what happened to Amelia's plane. <laughs> Which I rented on Amazon for two doll hairs. I know you said it's bad, but I'm going to watch it tonight anyway. (laughs) Honestly, it was a wild ride. I didn't finish it. I think I have like 10 minutes left, but I was like, I can't sit through this right now. Um, It wasn't terrible. Like, it was interesting, but the guys that they're interviewing are so old. Oh my god, true. And they were interviewing them, and I wish I had subtitles on, because some of them were just mumbling so much I had no clue what they were saying. Oh my gosh, that's good to know. I'll put on my subtitles when I watch. Yeah. So, all of these theories and, like, stories that I'm about to tell um, root directly from Amelia and Fred crashing in the Japanese-occupied Marshall Islands and being taken prisoner or something along those lines. So, the first guy they interview is a man who claims to have found Amelia's briefcase after a battle in Saipan. Saipan is how they pronounce it, so. Saipan. Saipan. In July of 1944. 
Also, <laughs> before I tell this guy's story, they talk about, like, because this was, like, a very, very, like, bloody battle. Like, they were not prepared. There was so many more Japanese soldiers than they thought were going to be there. But mm-hmm. <laughs> he's talking about how he gets shot in the hand. And oh he has God. to go back down to, like, the beach or something. And he's getting bandaged up. But then there's, like, not enough guys to keep fighting because so many I think so many people passed away or something, or there was just, like, so many more troops. So they sent him back out there with just, like, a wrapped-up hand with a hole in it. Oh, my God. (laughs) A hole in his hand. Yeah, so that was pretty shitty, but whatever, I guess. (laughs) Dedication. Yeah, so this man ends up finding her briefcase, and it's full of maps and papers and passports, he goes, oh, I only took it because I thought it was going to be full of money. That'd be sick. <laughs> like, understandable. He goes, but, I mean, I was really just, like, shocked because he found all this stuff, but mostly because it was dry and there was no water damage on any of it. Interesting. But he had been told that Amelia and Fred had crashed into the ocean. So how is her... Motherfucking briefcase dry. <laughs> mm-hmm. For a second. I know you said Amelia and Fred. I thought you said Amelia and friends. I was like, who did, what are you talking about? Her and her what? friends. Yeah, I just forgot his name. <laughs> friends. <laughs> but I guess as a soldier, if you find something, I don't know if this is still true. Um, if you find something and it has military value, you have to turn it in. But if you find something and it doesn't have military value, then you can turn it in and they'll give you a receipt and basically hold your little souvenir until you get home and return it to you. Interesting. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's so nice. That's just like a separate person to hold all your souvenirs. I wonder what the odds are that you actually get them back. Yeah. So he didn't get it back. Um so he thinks that, and he goes, oh, well, there's nothing of military value in here. If it was me, I would. Just, they would have so many cool rocks that they tried to take home. They would be like, Morgan, we're trying Morgan, to get rid of some of the weight on this plane. <laughs> Morgan, we can't bring home 20 pounds of rocks. Like, Who brought the rocks? <laughs> They're pretty. <laughs> but so he goes, turns it in, they give him a receipt, and he never sees the briefcase again. Shocker. Yeah. Um, another man who I don't also don't know his name, um, decoded a message and found out that they had found Amelia Earhart's airplane at the Athleto Airfield in Saipan. Saipan. All of the men interviewed in this part basically were like. Nah, I didn't bother looking because we all knew her plane was supposed to be at the bottom of the ocean. You like, like didn't even want to check. A whole <laughs> bunch of them were just like, meh. It's too much effort to try. <laughs> to clarify, none of this is confirmed. Yeah, this is <laughs> it's a bunch all of anecdotal. old white dudes talking. <laughs> yeah, it's all anecdotal. Yeah. <laughs> but this is my favorite. So yeah. um none of them thought it could be her plane, but there were a whole bunch of soldiers standing guards. And there was also a bit of confusion in this time in general, but also, like, especially around this, because on, in Saipan, there was 
Marines, Navy, and Army. I'm not sure if there was, like, Air Force or anybody else, but they were all kind of working at the same place, but they weren't sure exactly who was in charge. Oh. (laughs) Because it was kind of, like, Marines reported to the higher Marines, and, like, everybody reported to their higher ranking, but, like, when it came to, like, intermingling, they didn't really know. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) (laughs) So... They weren't exactly sure, like, who was in charge of guarding the plane and who and who wasn't allowed in. So this one guy was like, I'm in the Marines and I'm guarding this plane. And basically it was just like, guys, I was given this order to stand here and not let anyone in. I get that you're higher ranking, but you're in the Army. So, I don't know, I'm also just not supposed to let anybody in. So I'm not. (laughs) Just doing my job. And there was one guy who was like, yeah, I just let him in because I didn't know, like, blah, blah, blah. Like, what am I going to do? So, wow. Um, It was just, like, a massive hot mess around this. So, they also interviewed a few different Native Islanders for this documentary. Um, I only have a few of their names, but mostly because some of them were really fun. This one man's name was Iliu Jibambam. Nice. Yeah. I was like, oh, that's a sick last name. Jibambam. He tells a story of a plane crashing between two islands and being towed away by the Japanese to Saipan. The locals were told not to talk about this incident, but they think her plane was taken since they also thought that she was an American spy. Um, One man's father told him, quote, an American lady pilot had been captured and taken into the the Japanese high command's office. (laughs) Okay. I just love the American lady pilot. <laughs> lady pilot. Which, like, then they're like, oh, thinking back on it, Amelia Earhart would have been in this area at this time. And she was the, like, American lady pilot that was well known at the time. Right. <laughs> so, Billamon Amaron is a local that says that he found Fred and Amelia after they crashed and he tended to a head wound on Fred's forehead, but he was not able to communicate with them since he didn't speak English at the time. Manny Muna is a retired Saipan senator, and he talks about someone who was ordered to shoot down an American plane, which they assume was Amelia and Fred, and then took them to Saipan to the Japanese Imperial Navy. Manny then shows the cells. I think it's like these really gross like jail cells that are like not I don't know. They're like really not good looking. He shows shows them these jail cells where they had been jailed and interrogated. Um, and then they talk to this woman who says that she knows the place where they killed Amelia. Oh, geez. Yeah, because some of these theories, a lot of these theories end up with her being executed. One of them ends up with her being that woman in New Jersey, but. Right. <laughs> Which, I mean, makes sense because they thought she was a spy in this theory, so. Yeah, and, th- and a lot of them, they thought that she was a spy or that she was sent and was told to, like, take pictures because no one would suspect her as a spy Mm. and that one is like a pretty common theory but she said that they took her to a pre-dug grave and demanded that she kneel in front of it when Amelia refused they shot her in the chest and she fell back into the grave bummer Mm. 
Um, one of the soldiers was named Andrew Bryce, and he was sent to the Marshall Islands probably at, like, 17. I think he was one of the ones that, like, lied about his age. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he had met a deckhand that worked on a bunch of the cargo ships before the war, and, like, this man had been around a whole bunch, so he was like, oh, do you know about Amelia Earhart? Like, asking him these questions. And this guy said that he had seen her plane and that he actually helped load it onto a Japanese barge. Oh. And so then this guy goes home. Him and all of his brothers are just returning from the military. His sister's back from being a nurse, all this stuff, having a great dinner. And he's telling this story. And his brother, Douglas, goes, wait, I saw her airplane in Saipan. Oh, my gosh. So, Douglas Bryce was in the Air Force in Saipan, and he arrived in November of 1944. He says that the airplane had belly landed in the middle of the Marshall Islands, and it was placed in a restricted area, and as somebody who was in the Air Force, he did see her airplane and said that it did really look like her plane because... The military didn't have those types of planes. The Japanese didn't have those types of planes because it was an American plane. And it was like only... a very like hot shot looking plane too. It was yeah, flat. and they only made like a handful of them, so mm-hmm. it was not super common. Um, and he even heard some guys say that they had flown the plane, which huh? probably isn't true. But oh my god, <laughs> if they crashed it, so I call bullshit. <laughs> yeah. So, this last piece I have is this one guy says <laughs> that he hears them talking about going to fly Amelia's plane for, like, the last flight tomorrow. They're like, tomorrow at 2, we're going to go fly Amelia's plane. So, him and some buddies go out and they, like, army crawl through the grass <laughs> and to, like, try to see it. And suddenly, a really low-flying plane with R16023 on it, which I guess means it's not a military plane, um, (laughs) flew over them. And then he said that, I guess, after this, or before, or, like, during, it was, like, very, around the same time, I think, the plane had been doused in some type of accelerant and then shot down over the water Jesus to destroy it that's aggressive yeah and then they went back to camp and didn't tell anybody classic (laughs) yup and very last note is there is a whole bunch of different people um locals and some of the older military men that basically said that they had been shown her where Amelia was buried and one is quote I was shown the grave by a native woman she told me it was the grave of a white woman and a white man that came from the sky oh yeah they did come from the sky they did indeed and so those are the theories that I covered, um, there's definitely more, but 
Yeah, there's like, we could not go into all of them. There's so many. (laughs) Oh my God. It was hard for me to like, even just from the documentary, I guess you can call it that, that I watched. (laughs) It, they talk about so many different people and so many different people being like, oh yeah, I saw her briefcase and it had these documents in it. And then like this person took this and then I saw this. And then like so many people are like, oh yeah, like I saw where she's buried and I get it's wartime in like 40s, 50s and stuff and you can't take pictures and if you're not going to get the briefcase back, but I don't know. I feel like this is almost like the opposite of what you hear in other cases where it's like somebody had to see something and in this one everybody saw something, but it's all different and none of it Yeah, makes it's like sense. everybody saw something but nobody should have seen anything. Right, and none of it really makes sense, but <laughs> yeah. What's your theory? I I don't know. I kind of want to believe that she was taken by aliens. Well, obviously. But I think that they crash. I really I think that most likely if they didn't end up at the bottom of the ocean. And I want to say that they were taken by Japan, but I don't really want to. I think that they were castaways. Yeah, I'm torn between the them like hanging, like living for a while on Gardner Island as castaways, but the Japan one also makes a smidge of sense to me. So I'm kind of torn both ways. Mm-hmm. What I want to have happened is I wanted them to crash, and I wanted um. <laughs> I wanted them to crash. I wanted them to crash. Well, obviously, I didn't want them to crash. But if they crashed, I want them to make a life on Gardner Island. I want Fred and Amelia to fall in love and live happy for the rest of their lives until they died of old age. (laughs) (laughs) But that's obviously not what happened. (laughs) Okay, Morgan, it's not a (laughs) rom-com. Everybody wins in that scenario. That is a cute one, but isn't, wasn't Gardner, was Gardner Island, yeah, British people came, like, a few years later. Yeah. There was also, I don't know if you mentioned it, there's an old shipwreck on Gardner Island. Mm-hmm. Which, like, kind of played, it didn't really play into it, but it was mentioned a lot in the documentary that I watched. Yeah, it's mentioned a lot when they talk about Gardner Island, because they mention it in a way slightly to disprove it Mm -hmm. because that shipwreck landed on piece of the reef and then eventually broke off and piece of it fell and they would the ship would have been there and so people are thinking maybe she saw that ship oh what they thought they saw but also like the plane would have been stuck there because there was Right. Coral reef right there that a boat got stuck in. Like, the plane wouldn't have just disappeared. Right. It all makes sense, and none of it makes sense all at the same time. Yeah. Like, the second you're like, oh, wow, that makes sense, there's all of a sudden a fact that's like, okay, now that makes it impossible. <laughs> right. And then you hear another theory, and you're like, oh, that makes sense. But it also doesn't make sense, so it's, I don't know, it, yeah. it blows my mind a little bit. It's, if you had told me that there was a life raft on there, I'd be like, all right, well, then they're anywhere in the world. They floated somewhere. Yeah. Huh. Well, thank you for sharing. Of course, you too. <laughs> that was fun. I like it when we do it like that and get to split it up. 
Yeah. But we'll have to do that for Lizzie Borden. Yes. Back. Yes. We are going to go to the Borden house because I've never been there. Neither have I. Perfect. I need to go. But we want to hear your guys's um, theories as to what happened. So hit us up. Yeah, hit us up. And um, since we'll be gone for a little while, hit us up with any topics. Because um, while Morgan's away, I'll be here researching some fun topics that she doesn't know about. But um. (laughs) Yes. And, like, because we're going to be... So we have two more episodes after this one coming out, and then we'll be off for a couple weeks. And... That's the perfect time to introduce someone that hasn't listened. Yeah. Because they have time to binge all of our episodes. Or something. Which you should. <laughs> Absolutely. And even if you're behind, if you're behind, you're probably not listening to this episode. But <laughs> <laughs> tell your friends <laughs> to catch up. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, you know the deal. <laughs> Stay tuned next Monday and every Monday for new episodes. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or literally wherever you like to listen. We're on seven platforms. Yes. <laughs> We're on Instagram at Monday Mornings Pod, on Twitter at Monday Mornings P, and we have a Facebook Facebook page. But Instagram is by far where where we are the most active because I am not skilled in Twitter or Facebook. So <laughs> Yeah, I hate Facebook. And, and I hate Twitter, so... <laughs> I don't know how to tweet. Like, it's not just, like, the random thoughts in my brain, so... Um. <laughs> so, Instagram. Instagram's the most reliable <laughs> for us. <laughs> but if you have any questions or topics that you'd like to have covered in a future episode, obviously hit us up on Instagram, but you can also email us at mondaymorningspod at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. And as always, start your Monday mornings the right way with Maddie and Morgan. Bye.